Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. The ACA is the peak body representing chiropractors in Australia. Hosted by ACA President Dr Anthony Coxon, these podcasts explore the science, art, philosophy and politics of chiropractic, as well as reviewing the latest research and discussing how chiropractors can strive for excellence in practice. Welcome to the Australian Chiropractors Association podcast. I'm your podcast host, Luke Nelson. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Craig Levinson. Dr. Levinson is the director of LA Sports and Spine, a pain management, rehab and performance enhancement centre, providing one-on-one musculoskeletal care. He's an adjunct professor in the School of Chiropractic Division of Health Sciences over here at Murdoch Uni and consultant for the Anglo-European Chiropractic College in chiropractic rehab. Craig is the first ever chiropractic member of the McKenzie Institute Board of Directors and he serves on the editorial boards on numerous journals, including the Journal of Occupational Rehab, PM&R, Journal of Injury, Function and Rehabilitation, the Journal of Bodywork and Movement Therapy and the Journal of Manual Therapy. Dr. Lieberson publishes extensively and is the editor of the book DVD Rehab of the Spine, a Practitioner's Manual which has actually just been revised last year. So it's with great excitement that I introduce Craig. Thanks for joining us, Craig. You're welcome. It's great to meet you, Luke. I'm, I'm, I'm always happy to speak with somebody from down under. Yeah, and uh, we might might uh, open it up first with, with some of the, um, the webinars that you have been doing recently um, for your followers, and, and we will post a, a link to that. But um, lots of really interesting stuff. Obviously, the, the situation that we're in at the moment with, uh, with COVID around the world and affecting uh, everyone's practices. Um, if you could just give us a bit of a, uh, I guess, a bit of a snapshot of how things have changed for you in, in, in practice with the, the limitation of face-to-face treatment. Well, at first, uh, I wasn't really sure what uh, we were going to do. We kind of uh, started to limit the numbers of people we were seeing, and then um, we decided to start to do the telehealth until I completely left the office. So it's 100% telehealth now. And uh, ironically, surprisingly, um, it's, it's more personal didn't expect that. It uh, requires a deeper level of empathy, uh, a more acute listening skill, and the programming is different. Uh, we, we found that the patient or client is actually getting a more robust, harder workout, a more focused workout, and the best, best part of all, and Peter O'Sullivan talks about this, um, best of all, People aren't so focused on their pain, and they're definitely not focused on what they can't get, which is what they often were expecting to get, which is passive care, uh, the whole fix-it, uh, Batman-style uh, treatment. Instead, they're, uh, they're more appreciative, and they recognize the value of uh, their, their healthcare professional being more like Alfred and guiding by the side and giving them the tools. So ironically, this has... This has uh, contextually changed the relationship in a way that is consistent with best practices. Yeah, and that's that's what I guess there's been um, you know a lot of rumblings for a while about the the benefits of telehealth, and now we're sort of thrust into uh, into that direction for um, uh, quite forcibly, and uh, with a lot of some people you know experimenting with it and and uh, 
uh, you know, I, I, I imagine that, that some of this will be an ongoing thing for, for um, people now, that, that even people see the benefits of this and, and uh, um, that it could be something that, uh, that now opens up a whole lot of other possibilities for, for people when, when this, uh, this all ends. Um, I think Peter, Peter's not going back to face-to-face. Nah, right. right. Um, well. So uh, I could see I'm 60 years old. Um, I love my gym. Don't mm. get me wrong. I love my gym, but, uh, you know, uh, the idea of, uh, you're, you're an Aussie, you love, you love your tennis over there. You know, mm. like my wife wants to go to Mallorca, yeah. hang out at Ralph yeah. Nadal's tennis Academy. Oh. So I'm like, okay, well, you know, yeah. I'll do, I'll do telehealth, you know, six hours a day and, and you can frolic on the tennis courts. That is that is perfect, and that that's you know one of the things I think one of the limitations is that uh, you know, people think we're we, we are limited to our to our four walls of the, of the clinic, but um, this makes people see that there are there are options outside of that. I mean, I know that um, we had a, a webinar for uh, Sports Car Australia the other the other night discussing some of these things, and and it, it's it's it is quite confronting for for a lot of people because you know we were never I mean I. I finished uni 17 years ago which is a while ago now but and this was certainly never anything that was discussed when I was at uni but even still these days it's not something that the people are really uh, are prepared for um, it, it's uh, and so it can be can be quite confronting when when we think that the you know a lot of people are trained that the only way to help people is is, is with their hands um, and it's I guess it's making people realize that the that there is so much more that we we, we have to offer um, and, which which people are you referring to <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> I ask that rhetorically. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, you know, um, this is uh, this is uh, not malpractice, but it's not evidence based. And the challenge for people um, that uh, I respect, like uh, Jan Hertbingensen in Denmark, uh, our most evidence based chiropractor, um, has always been knowledge translation. And so we're trying to bridge the gap between knowledge and practice, between science and, and, and the trenches. And we failed. We've, we've had evidence that reassurance and reactivation are the, the alpha and the omega of best practices since the late 1980s. And yet we haven't moved the needle. Um, uh, I learned from Dr. Levin and Professor Yanda, who appreciated this in the 1960s. So they were really ahead of the curve. They were ahead of the evidence. And... Um, Levitt famously said, rehab is teaching people um, uh, about self-management, about what they can do for themselves. So if you look at Hippocrates, um, the first treatment is, is um, you know, is crucially not, is to, is to do no harm. And Dr. Levitt recast that by saying the first treatment is to teach the person to avoid what harms them. But maybe we need to recast it again into, into, uh, the physician needs uh, needs to uh, uh, avoid the language and the conceptualizations that uh, that harm people, and so we use language: instability, misalignment, pelvic torsion, um, and then we make people prisoners of, of cookie cutter kind of protocols and we become prisoners of the protocols and then people are afraid like what if i do the exercise wrong so you have people onboarded to motor control training and yet they're a prisoner of well i don't want to do it on my own because i might do it wrong you know because you're a dns practitioner or you're doing richardson and joel's work or hodge's work and 
uh, you're afraid that you're not doing it properly because it's so fine, the technique. There's so much artistry in your Batman practitioner. Um, we've, we've, we've forgotten about the fact that children learn um, independent of our language. They learn because of the environment that we, uh, that we create for them. And we put the constraints for safety so we childproof a home and then we want them to play. We want them to creatively explore and learn via mistakes. And yet um, we make people feel, um, and it's a nocebo, that, that they're in danger if they do things wrong. Hmm. And, even, and that's the chiropractors and physical therapists who are advocating exercise. So I did that. I created a cottage industry. I contributed to this of corrective exercises. This was the opposite of... Uh, one of the great ambassadors of movement Feldenkrais. And that's, that's the person who um, Yonda modeled himself after. Uh, Yonda never believed in cortical exercise. It was subcortical. Um, he wanted to gamify exercise. So this is modern behavioral psychology or behavioral economics of game theory, where you create the environment with upstream nudges and the environment constrains the person in a way that challenges them at the edge of their capability. So a, they hit a flow state. So there's, there's no cortisol, there's lots of endorphins, and now you're opening the gateways for learning. And if you're, if you're a chiropractor, this is above, down, inside, out. This is, this is from Voltaire, the Vise Meditrix Naturale. So we wanna create an environment that's, that's relatable to people, that relates to their goal, that, that they can buy into, and gets them upstream of the problem, gets to the source of the problem. Everybody wants to know, why do I have this recurrent knee or back problem? Um, and we may know, it's like Tim Gabbett teaches us, it's not the activity that breaks you down, it's the activity you're not prepared for. So we want to teach people what they need to do to become better prepared for these unexpected, unforeseen black swan events, hmm. like coronavirus, like a sneeze, like you're helping a friend move, uh, friends come into town and love to hike, you hate to hike, you're worried you're going to hurt your knee again. You know, well, you want to prepare for that friend's visit <laughs> yeah. ahead of time. Uh, yeah. You know, you're going to a conference, there's going to be a lot of drinking. Well, maybe you need to condition yourself for <laughs> drinking before the conference. Well, I like that one. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Just doing some pre-season training before a, concert, uh, before a conference. Exactly. It's, uh, it, uh, you, you mentioned before, you mentioned just then, and, and I heard you mention it in, uh, in your webinar as well, that, that um, with, you know, you not being so stringent on, on exercise, on, on how they're doing it, you know, not giving those, giving those constraints. What, what, what made that, what made you make that change? What was it, what was it that you sort of thought, you know what, I'm, I'm going to step back here a bit. Well, I remembered, <laughs> I remembered that Professor Yonda didn't, didn't teach any voluntary exercise. So I had forgotten that, number one. Number two, I always quoted Dr. Levitt, um, but I don't think I ever fully, um, um, allowed it to sink in, um, this, this, this teaching of his, this tenet of his, um, that we should not try to teach perfect patterns, but we should correct the key fault that's causing the trouble. So I think there became this infatuation as, as people learn different, um, schools of thought, they learn how to teach pristine patterns in the bird dog or in the dying bug or in the beast crawl or what have you. Um, and then of course they want to raise the standard, but people, people are motivated by progress. 
and the greatest impact an intervention can have is when you're working on the low-hanging fruit. So the rising tide, according to John F. Kennedy, lifts all the boats. So this is behaviorally and motivationally and psychologically uh, a way to gamify uh, your relationship with, with your client or your patient. Uh, results speak more than any words. And the greatest results, the greatest impact comes from interventions that focus on your low-hanging fruit. Uh, at Stanford, we talked about this with Gray Cook and Professor McGill. Um, Gray said if he had to do it over again, he would change the, the scoring system for FMS. He said instead of zero to three, he'd make it zero to two. And so I started asking my, court, my, my attendees, what, would, what was he suggesting we cut out? Um, and most people struggle with that answer. Um, it turns out he would cut out the two. Now the question is, where does he then move? what was the two the two was acceptable compensation so where did he shift it did he shift it to the three which is pristine or did he shift it to the one which is unacceptable unacceptable form um and i think people are kind of split on where it where it should go uh he said it should go with the three so you know think about golf i mean you you have uh, the great great greg norman and other great great golfers there Adam Scott, Baddeley, and et cetera. Um, uh, we know from one of the most legendary golfers of all, the, the, the Lee Trevino from Mexico, when he taught that the, great, the champion is the one who had the best misses. Hmm. It's not about hitting perfect every time. You know, there's no way that, 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 that any champion is going to strike the ball perfectly you know, 69 hmm. times in a round. Yep. and win on the final day of a major. It's the one with the best misses. They may go a whole round and, and hit it perfect once. <laughs> so, so the guy who thinks they're supposed to hit it perfect is going to get frustrated. Then they're going to uh, stress. Cortisol is going to go up, and then they're going to choke. Yeah. Now, our patients, it's the same. From Formula One to Toyota, from, from the elite to the consumer version, well, we know the same thing occurs with people who have fear of movement, who are fragilistas. Uh, they're concerned they're going to do things wrong all the time. Well, let's lower the bar. Let's just clean up the, the biggest mess. Let's take care of the biggest potholes on our streets. Um, uh, we don't have to make the streets feel, feel like they're, they're a cushion of air, uh, yeah. but let's get rid of the big potholes. And with patients, the biggest pothole is in their mind. The biggest yeah. pothole is that they're afraid if they do something wrong, they'll break. Yeah. They'll crack. And the body is built to last, it's not built to break. So these ideas of resiliency should be part and parcel of our education. We should identify fear avoidance beliefs. We should identify the source of fear avoidance beliefs. Well, every patient tells me before I say a word, uh, well, I was told that I have a herniated disc. I was told I have a narrow spinal canal, uh, ruptured disc, torn labrum, torn rotator cuff. Uh, I have uh, impingement in my hip. I have a meniscal tear. Um, and then they follow it with, I was told, uh, to avoid things that hurt. So they associate hurt with harm. So A, we think that there's an equal correlation of, of structural pathology and symptoms. B, we think every hurt equals harm. And then C, people are told uh, that um, they have wear and tear. Mm. And they should learn to live with it. Yeah. Sedentary people are being told they have wear and tear and should learn to live with it. But the, I want to reverse that and start talking in a different language, like the motion is the lotion. 
not every hurt equals harm. I want to give them the facts that there's a false positive rate on imaging in asymptomatic people. Um, mm. So we can um, turn it all around and give, give messages that aren't uh, iatrogenic or nocebos. And we can do that through telehealth. Like you don't need well, to be in the room with it. It's easier. Yeah. They want to be cracked. They're wanting mm. your elbow in their QL. Mm. They're wanting to learn how to deal with their psoas. Mm. And you perhaps got a more more captive audience when they're uh, when they're not there with those expectations. They're they're uh, they'll, they'll listen to what you what you're going to say. They'll hang on your hang on your every word. Ideally, um, you mentioned before with um, uh, with with gamification. And for for those of our listeners that that aren't familiar with that with that term or that principle, can you just explain a bit more about that with gamification and rehab? Yeah. So game theory is about uh, creating a sticky environment where people will continue to play the game and spend more money um, <laughs> online <laughs> online gaming so uh there's ambient sounds uh there's the colors there's flashing lights uh there's the games themselves there's different optionality to find the thing that resonates with each person um, um and uh theories of gamification are about creating a positive environment that's relatable for that person so we want to know what people's preferences are with activity. Uh, and then we're very agnostic about what activity. There's no one right exercise. There are many roads to roam. So that's part of gamification. And then another part of gamification is making it playful. So having like a scoreboard, doing things where you're timing a person and let's say a beast crawl, or you're creating a lie detector, like I put a yoga block on your back when you do the bird dog. So instead of me saying, you're doing it wrong, you're, you're dropping your pelvis on one side, or you're hiking your hip on one side, or you're, you're going into a sway back, these negative messages are the opposite of, 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 of how you motivate people. You mm -hmm. motivate people by rewarding the positive, by complimenting the positive, and ignoring the negative. So, so we can put a yoga block on, and now they're challenged by the feedback. So the cue is the feedback. So if they're doing a beast crawl or a bird dog and the yoga block falls off, they're like, hey, they go grab it. You don't even say a word. They grab it. They put it on, your, on their own back and, and they go, oh, I can figure it out. I can figure it out. You just use gamification. And it's that, that term self-limiting exercise, isn't it? That uh, the, the patient is, is, is guided with their own, uh, their own feedback. Self-limiting and um, like a bottoms-up kettlebell carry um, or uh, something where there's auto-regulation is another term. And this, a lot of this comes from Australian researchers in motor learning or skill acquisition. So when I wrote the functional training handbook, when I got to the last two chapters, I did a deep dive into the, the, the work of skill acquisition experts, David's and, and Newell and people of this ilk. And it turns out the skill acquisition experts learned a long time ago how you create residual adaptation. So very neurological based how you get stuff to stash in the subconscious. And it's when the person problem solves on their own. If mm. you tell them what to do, like imagine you're training a horse. So I posted on Twitter yesterday, I shared on Twitter, there's this person who left coaching humans to coaching horses. And she said that, that um, she now obviously is not using her words. She's using her tone of her voice, hmm. but it's not the words. So she's using tone and then there's no physical manipulation. There may be certain reassuring touches, but there's no uh, manipulation with their hands. Mm -hmm. If somebody's pelvis 
when they're you know, doing a bird dog. You'll see a lot of people training the bird dog. And they're manipulating the pelvis with their hands. Hmm. It, just, it just doesn't lead to residual adaptation or hmm. transfer into activities of daily life or valued life activities. Yeah, it's a, it's a very uh, very valid principle, and and with with uh, and obviously current situation aside, with passive modalities, so hands on hands on treatment, where do you think that they they uh, stand in the in the, the the patient care? God, you're asking all, all the pertinent questions. I am the tough the tough ones. That uh... <laughs> so so uh, I think it's an, I think it's it's a necessary question. I think it's an easy question. So. Robin McKenzie from New Zealand always said that the first treatment you should do, person throws their back out, if you understand the spine, if they threw their back out, you should be able to educate them on how they can put their back back in. So, you know, granted, it's not mechanical, uh, but, but the principle applies. Uh, number two, he explained why. It's behavioral psychology 101. If, if you get them feeling better, then they're going to be dependent on you. But if the high road, if the ultimate goal is for people to be reassured and to be reactivated, again, the alpha and the omega of, of evidence-based practice, then the first thing should be to do something where they feel self-confidence or self-efficacy um, and they feel um, less uh, fragile. And so teaching them what they could do for themselves, they know they can apply that later. Now, lastly, as far as the specific question of the indications for manual therapy or passive care, I think Joycey, David Joyce, your great performance coach, said it best, you earn your, you earn your recovery. Um, so what does that mean? That means that LeBron James has every right to spend a million dollars a year on, on recovery work. Um, uh, Kawhi Leonard is very wise to, to prioritize recovery work, to lengthen his career, uh, to make him able to withstand the most challenging passages of play, which come at the end of the season, in the end of the quarters, at the end of these seven game series in the NBA playoffs, when the games matter the most uh, in, in the, the work of, of the great sports scientist, Tim Gabbitt. And, and other than that, I think for acute care, we've um, misinterpreted all the literature. There is a role for passive care, but it, it wouldn't trump a uh, lousy, lousy term to use. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't uh, supersede uh, the evidence for active care. There's no evidence for passive care over active care in the acutes. Um, so I would say it's a recovery tool primarily. Yep. And in the acutes and subacutes, you can do it um, after you've done active care so that people are motivated and they feel more confident. Mm. And have you, have you found yourself over your years of, of practice changing that? Have you, have you, you know, have you ever been heavily manual, manual based or? Real, I, real I, started off, I started off infatuated with the soft tissues. Yeah. Um, and um, that helped me to get more arrows in my quiver. So I learned a lot. This is, you know, before ART, uh, I learned a lot about soft tissues as a student. And then learning about the, the muscles and, and fascia uh, was a gateway to learning about the value of, of, of uh, coordination and strength and endurance. Mm. And so almost immediately, once I started learning about tight muscles and trigger points and things of that nature, uh, I dovetailed that with appreciating the value of, of exercise. Um, so for a long time, uh, I developed the craft of learning to identify soft tissue lesions and address them. But 
that was when I was a student. And by the time I was an intern, I was already um, getting into trouble because I didn't want to use <laughs> debunked passive modalities like ultrasound. And they had requirements at chiropractic school. You had to do so many of these debunked procedures. And so I refused and, and explained why I defended why I was going to do three things with every patient. I was going to give them advice. I was going to do some manual therapy or manipulation. And I was going to do some, give them some exercise. So I called it AIM, A-M-E, Advice Manipulation Exercise. Um, and... I don't remember how it played out. Somehow I graduated. <laughs> um, but I, I, I was always fond of doing uh, cavitations. And uh, I found that when you combine it with the soft tissue work and the exercise, that, that actually cavitations go easier and last longer. Hmm. And the goal was always to do as few of them as possible, not as many as possible. And I think over time... Uh, when I was introduced to Robin McKenzie's work, that's when I started to do active care first. So that probably took a, a brief time. I mean, I was licensed in 87, graduated in 86. Probably by 88, I was trying to do active care first. Right, and then the others, the others would, would, would follow but, on top of that. But, uh... but your point is so, is so valid that people are expecting. So aside from telehealth, we go back to face to face. Mm. Uh, we're a hostage of those expectations all over again. Yeah. And, and then the question is, do you follow the, the line of a lot of very great uh, business people in chiropractic and physical therapy where you give them what they want and then you give them what they need? Yeah. And I would say, no, I say that's lame. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's, that's bullshit. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. Yes, I understand that, but I don't think you have to do that. I think you can do what you said. You, you give them a positive experience with movement. You, what we now call, uh, you violate their expectations. Mm -hmm. And you, it, it's, it's like we thought the earth was flat. It turned out we were wrong. We thought the sun rotated around the earth. It turns out we were wrong. You have to show people. You have to give them an experience, an empirical experience. This is science. You, mm. You're doing a hypothesis. You're not a know-it-all. You're saying, okay, let's explore this. And like Abraham Maslow, one of the great psychologists of the 20th century said, you create a safe environment. So we're back to gamification. It's not yep. just fun. It's also safe. Safety comes first. You create a safe environment. You explain that these moves are, are been shown to be safe and effective. You know, kind of like an argument like Professor McGill would give in BackFit Pro. These, are, mm. these have robust evidence. They're safe and effective. Um, and then you start them moving. And if the cat-cow, if the flexion phase bothers them, you say, we're going to stop at, at neutral. And we're just going to go down. And then you repeat that. And then you get them in a bird dog. And if they have crappy motor, motor control, you do just the leg reach. Mm. And then you, you reinforce the positive. And before you know it, they're focused on the skill rather than their symptoms. And then they go back to a, a, a reassessment of provocative movements and they go, huh, wow, I feel a lot better. You fixed me. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, they, they won't say that. No, nah, well, well, they might, they might I, but then you would quickly point out that you're not serious. the fat man. Yeah, I love the fact you said that. You're not, you would correct them. You're, well, no, you did this yourself. Absolutely. Mm. So, so this is this is not that hard. Mm. <laughs> it mm. just takes it. All it takes is an awareness. People have to, to become woke. It takes an awareness, it takes consciousness 
of what the facts are. Mm. The facts are that nobody's going to change their behavior because of what you say. They're only going to change their behavior because of what they experience. Yeah. And you are responsible. You are the conductor. You're responsible for creating the environment. Now we're back to gamification. Mm. Ecologically valid, constraints-based, auto-regulation, self-limiting, relatable. Describe it however you want. You know, I like to make it relatable. So I need to know, A, what their goals are. Mm and what their concerns are. I want to know all about their history. I want them to, to, to feel that I'm listening to them. I want to make that connection. I want them to feel heard. When they're done talking after 40 minutes, and I do spend 40 minutes on the history, I yeah. say, is there anything else? No, there's nothing else. Are you sure? And I've repeated to them what I thought I heard and asked for verification that I got it right. Is there anything else? I keep asking, is there anything else? This is motivational interviewing. Mm -hmm. And it builds a therapeutic alliance. And then we assess for what? For their floor, for their, their low-hanging fruit. It's like Dirty Harry, Clint Eastwood and Dirty Harry. A man's got to know his limitations. We want people to know what their silent killers are, like high blood pressure. We want to know them to know it's ankle mobility, it's single leg balance, it's, it's uh, uh, their squat, it's their uh, single leg bias exercise, it's pushing, it's pulling, it, whatever it is when they know what their low-hanging fruit is, then we found their baselines. Mm. Now we can manage the case. You can't manage what you can't measure. So, so it all just sort of flows at this point. Okay, we're going to focus on this, explain why the poor squat pattern relates to their knee problem because they're doing knee-dominant squats and they want to, we want to teach them hip-dominant squats. Mm. Or it relates to their back because they're doing trunk-dominant squats and we want them to do hip-dominant squats. Explain it simply. And then the proof is in the empirical trial. So we explain we're gonna do a test. We don't know the result, but this all adds up so far. We think we found something. Um, now we're gonna play in the mud together. And off you go. And I think that's that's a uh, something that all our listeners can can take out of that is the is that exact that exact approach and and uh, you know I guess a, a five minute history is is doesn't really cut it does it and uh, when trying to delve into uh, into to some of these issues and and get the answers to uh, to all those questions to find out where you uh, where you need to take them. Not when relation, not when communication is the most powerful technique of all, mm. and, and the key to a sustainable relationship is is getting that connection, them feeling heard. Uh, empathy is the first step, and then compassion is the second. So the compassion comes from, from seeing a plan forward mm. and being able to lead them. It's a Buddhist sort of uh, concept, but, but empathy is to build the bridge. Um, they, we should feel uh, that, uh, that they're relaxing in our presence, that, that, that they're having the experience that somebody's finally listening to me. Mm. Somebody has heard me, heard my cry. Um, and that opens the door. At, at that, after that point, it's not us, about us putting our hand on their shoulder. People don't want uh, sympathy. They want to know, okay, what should I do? And so mm. that's when we pivot from empathy to compassion. And compassion, two basic one would now be the second part of our encounter, which is our exam. Mm. So it's got to be a relatable exam. So we found out what their, their goals are and what their concerns are. Now we have to see if they have what they need. Do they have uh, the, uh, the required capacities to do? Uh, do they currently have those capacities that they need to successfully achieve their demands? 
of, 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 of their valued life activities. Um, and then thirdly is the trial without being a know-it-all, without it being a cookie cutter of, okay, now we're going to play in the mud. Uh, we're going to prop the window open. Um, uh, and we're going to start to sort through this, uh, while at the same time explaining to them that we're not um, promising a quick fix. Uh, we're, we're, we don't have a crystal ball. Uh, we don't have a magic wand. Um, you might feel better in the short term, but it could be like a cough drop. Uh, this still could go on for a while. There's a certain um, unpredictability about musculoskeletal pain that is different from like a fracture. Uh, we wanna be very transparent. We wanna give them realistic expectations. I think it's a key to, to patient satisfaction that you don't set the bar too low because if they're expecting a quick fix, the next thing you know, they're gonna go for the passive care. They're mm -hmm. gonna go for the injection. They're gonna want an MRI with false positives because uh, they'll assume that they can't possibly get better without knowing the exact cause. And then they're gonna be vulnerable to people preying on them with experimental things like stem cells and PRP that don't have robust evidence mm -hmm. or you know, the final solutions, which are surgeries. Imagine a back pain patient being told they need a fusion mm, yeah. because they've gone down the opiate pathway and the neurotin pathway and the epidural pathway and, and, and pa different passive cares. And they bailed on exercise too quickly. Mm. And, and we're sedentary to begin with. Like, of course, it's going to take time. I love, in this context, the work of Christian Thorberg. So I know you have the great expert there, uh, Jill Cook, who I mm -hmm. admire immensely. Mm. Um, I think uh, one of the other great experts, she's more, let's say, general tendinopathy or lower limb, like Achilles, et cetera, Patellar. Mm -hmm. um, um, I think Christian's specialty is... is um, more, um, let's say, groin and things like that. And he says that we're giving the wrong expectations. And I think Jill would agree. We're telling people it's going to get better in, in a month mm. or two months when we should be telling people it's going to take five, six, seven, eight months. Yep. So they bail on isometrics or eccentrics or whatever. And then next thing you know, they're getting shockwave therapy and, yeah. and stuff else. All yep. because they wanted the quick fix. Yeah. Yeah, and that, so, that, uh, that and that can be a bit of a tough. impatient, impatient nature of uh, of, of the uh, civilization in general these days. Isn't it? We want stuff. We want stuff now, but uh, we want to be fixed. We fixed now. It's taken years to get here, but I want to be fixed by the end of this uh, this consult. So it's uh, it's um, uh, changing those expectations and uh, and and education, isn't it? To uh, teach them that, that what what they should really be expecting. It's um, kind of like with the FMS, the idea that the FMS could predict injury. Mm. Wrong expectation. Mm. Um, not one Gray Cook or Lee Burton um, uh, were initially advertising. It became sort of a, um, a thing, and they, they were perhaps guilty of not um, um, stopping it. And it became like a marketing thing and they just sort of let it unspool until it, it bit them in the butt. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it became clear that there were some people going, you know, I don't know about this. Mm. Um, I don't know about the choice of the test. I don't know about this as, as being as robust as, as advertised, nor is it an injury predictor at all. And, and, and I think it, it lost them a little bit of steam, but um, they never laid it out that way in the beginning. 
So expectations, like in injury prediction, we can't predict the future. We can't predict black swan yeah. events. Athletes will get hurt. People will get hurt. We're not, people want us to be curing them. They expect that we're going to cure them. We're not curing them. We have to tell them, we're not curing you. We're making it so you can resume valued life activities. And so as a result, you can become more active and lower your risk of all non-communicable diseases and communicable diseases. We now know that, that inflammation is one of the things that makes people vulnerable to COVID-19. Mm. And we're seeing you know, who are the people that are getting the sickest? They're people with a lot of inflammation. Hmm. Yes, um, it, 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 uh, it's, it's some, some, some kind of uh, a hell of a, a pill, isn't it, exercise in terms of all the benefits, uh, benefits that, are, that it offers. And uh, I still shake my head in thinking, you know, they're trying to find uh, a pill to, to, uh, to replicate exercise. That, um, <laughs> and I, I personally don't think we ever, we ever will, but, um, and nor should we. So there's so many, so many benefits physically and, and mentally that, uh, that, that it brings. Um, now, you've got to, at this, at this stage, you are, you are planning, and hopefully you are, planning to, uh, to come out to Australia in, in August. Can you, you can let our listeners know what, what, uh, what to expect from, um, from your, uh, your, your seminars? Well, if they, if they want to know what to expect, they can simply uh, attend some of the free uh, webinars. Um, they've all been selling out, so uh, if you don't get a spot, I say still come at the uh, scheduled time for the webinar and there's always no shows and you should be able to, to log in and just keep trying if you can't. Um, some of them are not at a good time for, for Australia, but mm-hmm. uh, in about, uh, uh, in, in a week, yeah, exactly seven days, uh, we'll be doing one at a bit more favorable time for you with, with Professor Lorimer Mosley. Oh, fantastic. So, special Thursday one in the afternoon here in Los Angeles. So, um, it'll be a couple hours later than this one, Luke. Yeah, so right. we're recording right now at, 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 at whatever time it is in Australia. Yeah, 6, uh, 6 a.m., which isn't, which isn't too bad. I've, I've, done, I've certainly done worse with, uh, with it'll meetings be three over hours the States. Later. Three hours yeah, later. That's perfect. And, it's, uh, and the other ones are all recorded, so you can go to firstprinciplesofmovement.com. You can see them. Um, excellent. And the courses, uh, it's this information, but then we play. So yeah. the, the time spent on, on lab immersion is probably 70, 80% of the time. Um, so we go into gamification. We do a lot of partner drills. We do a lot of functional screening on each other. Uh, the first course is about prepare. So it's about the movement preparation. So we go through a six-part movement preparation, uh, looking at the foot and sensory afferents, looking at how we um, uh, warm up a body, so how to raise core body temperature, uh, and get the heart rate going. Uh, so the physiological warm-up is the second part that we'll workshop. The third is pillar prep, uh, right out of Exos 101. So glutes and abs. If you're a DNS open scissor person or a Yonda lower cross syndrome or just a pillar person who feels glutes and abs are important, um, that's the, 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 the next part. And then we've already gathered information. Yonda taught that every exercise is a test. So we're we're assessing Dan Paff, one of the great sprint throw coaches in the world at Altus in Phoenix, Arizona. He says, my assessment, uh, you know, we've talked about FMS. He goes, my assessment is watching a person uh, warm up. Mm. Um, Another one of his assessments is watching him practice. You know, it's intent. It's, it's the intent of the, of, of the clinician or the coach. So, so this movement preparation is a movement preparation and an assessment. Every, every exercise of the test. 
So, so we've already learned a lot by studying how your feet function, the, the mobility in your transverse arch in your first MTP. We've learned a lot already from how you warm up. Are you fit or unfit? Are you right away in high threshold breathing habits? Uh, chin jut, shoulder shrug, uh, you can't catch your breath. Um, uh, and, and then when we get into pillar prep, uh, are you able to feel your glutes? Do you even feel your posterior chain, your hamstrings? Are you quad dominant? Or is everything dumping into your knee or your back? Um, uh, and then active mobility. Um, and active mobility, uh, I like jujitsu. I, I get most of my ideas from jujitsu and all the groundwork. They, they spend tons of time on the ground preparing. Uh, but you can look at FRC type of work. Um, uh, so we look at hips and ankles. We look at, at shoulder and T-spine. Um, and now we've got a, a lot of information already. So maybe you would do some special correctives at that point. Maybe in the 90-90 shin box, there's an, an apparent impingement in a hip, a loss of internal rotation. Um, so we can go, go right at 360 degrees of, of, of training. We can do a Copenhagen adductor. We can do an advanced side plank on the hand on one, one leg. We can do a heavy unilateral kettlebell suitcase carry. Um, we can load up those frontal plane muscles. We can do a lateral squat goblet style. I guarantee you, you go back, you don't need to spend 20 minutes doing FRC. Mm. I guarantee it. And now you've got buy-in because that patient now is going to go, damn, I felt that up into my spine and I saw how restricted it was, how asymmetrical it was. You just did those three or four exercises with me. Wow, that side that was problematic is now looser than the other side. Mm. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter if it recurs. You've got buy-in now. Now they're auto-regulating. You've given them some ideas. You're incubating. Um, mm. And and then go to the final part of the movement prep, um, the sixth part, which is how you handle the ground, how you, how you absorb force, uh, how you express uh, power. So we can look at one springs and shocks. We can look at jumping rope or skipping, see how you land in a foundation position, a quarter squat, um, see if you have quick feet, see how you work in the frontal plane, change of direction like somebody would need in tennis uh, at the Australian Open, uh, which uh, uh, we look forward to. We look yeah. forward I don't know who you're rooting for. Uh, I hope I'm a fitter, fitter man I myself. One yeah. More. yeah, I'm a fitter man. <laughs> um, but now we're done with the movement prep, and we've learned a lot. And that's what we, we teach in the first course. And, and that's a building block for general physical prep, which is the, the resistance training, the GPP, uh, which takes place in the second course. Uh, squat, lunge, hinge, push, pull, carry, triple flexion, triple extension, uh, rotation. Uh, the, the, ba the, the building blocks. And, and to give you context, the third class is on recovery. Right. So hydration and sleep would be the, the, the number one and two things. And of course, we do a lot of mobs in that. So we do a lot of the stuff that I learned as far as post-isometric relaxation from Dr. Levitt, a lot of joint traction uh, techniques, oscillations, um, uh, passive care. <laughs> Yeah, right. So, uh, so you were working working hard on the two days before, and 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 maybe maybe the night before, and then uh, and then having a, having a bit of a, well, I'd say an easier day, but I'm I'm sure it's not. But uh, 
Um, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing you and, and uh, I, I certainly pray that, that things uh, clear up for you to be able to come out. And if, if not, uh, if not this, uh, this, this August, it will be, it'll be sometime hopefully in the next, uh, the next 12 months. Craig. But, uh, well, I'd like to, to really thank you for, uh, for giving up your time. I know you're, you're a very busy man and, and you're doing some uh, fantastic stuff now online. Um, and uh, I'll certainly put a link in the show notes for all our listeners to, uh, to head to the first principles of movement and, and those, those webinars that you've uh, you've done as I mentioned before I've, I've watched those and and, and uh, got a lot out of them so I could listen to you and could talk to you for another few hours but I know you've got other things to uh, to do um, and uh, so that's it for me and, and thanks everyone for listening uh, I hope this podcast has been helpful in your quest for excellence and I look forward to chatting with you again on our next ACA podcast <music>